between teaching anointing and an impartation anointing, and we've just been drinking out of a fire hose all weekend. So <laughs> we're glad we get to drink some more this morning. And um, Elizabeth has, she's really, it's, it's amazing from the moment we met, it was just like instant rapport with one another. We just just felt like we're just so much alike from the cut from the same tribe of people or something. It's amazing. And it was really, you know, miraculous that we have her here because I didn't even know her and the Lord orchestrated her coming. And it's, so it's really been a God thing. And we really believe she's leaving behind a deposit uh, for us that it is, is really a key and marks something for us. So come on, Elizabeth, up and we'll come on up here and so welcome, Elizabeth A. Nixon, and her husband, John. John, with you, stand up. John, he's, he's been great. He's been hanging out with all of us women all weekend. It's been great. Um, they, they were driving up and are headed to Australia on Tuesday, so it just worked out for them, uh, their family, to stay up there with us. So it's been really fun getting to know John, and he's a... Um, he is in film. He's a director of film. He's worked in Hollywood. So isn't that amazing? So it's really, really cool. But let's pray for Elizabeth. Uh, if you raise your hands toward her, yeah, and let's just ask the Holy Spirit to refill her tank because she's really been pouring out. So, Lord, we just want to uh, get to this final message and see what you have for us today, Lord, We and for the people that are here today. Lord, we're just asking you, Holy Spirit, to come to manifest yourself in and through Elizabeth. And in this atmosphere today, Lord, to do what you want to do. Lord, to bring the message forth in boldness and clarity, Lord, today for this church, for River Life Fellowship, the thing that you have brought Elizabeth here to give us. Lord, we just say yes and amen to it. And we welcome you here, Holy Spirit. We welcome her angels that have come with her to do their bidding, Lord, and we say yes and amen to all of your promises, Lord, destinies being fulfilled. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for welcoming me here this morning. We have felt so welcomed and embraced by the women up there, and we're just really grateful to be up here. When we left Florida on Thursday morning, it was still 84 degrees, so we're enjoying the cool even. I want to just take a couple of minutes to introduce myself so that uh, we can be a little bit introduced. Um, John and I lived in Los Angeles for about 10 years, and during that time I practiced law. And uh, while I was there, I was licensed to practice in California. I'm also licensed to argue cases before the United States Supreme Court. I have served with the IRS. I was featured in Vanity Fair magazine and was uh, the recipient of Businesswoman of the Year Award. Now, those are all the fancy things that the world likes. But the most important part of my walk that I think that you should know is that I began this great career as a high school dropout. And when the Lord called me to go to law school and he had lawyers that I was working for tell me, you should just go to law school and do it. And I thought, Lord, they don't know. I have to go and get my GED first. (laughs) I don't think that they realize that. But I think that's important to know because if you feel like God has a call on your life, and you feel like that he has something for you and you don't understand how that could ever be, just do like I did and sign up to become the foolish one to confound the wise. Well, this morning I want to share with you about Pentecost, even though we're not actually celebrating Pentecost Sunday this morning. But it's so important, I believe it deserves more than just once a year attention. 
And the Lord has some really beautiful stuff that he wants to unfold. So if you'll just give me permission to follow my notes, because he's been very specific about where we're going to start and where we're going to finish. But I believe that Pentecost is the second most important event after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the most, second most important event in Christian history, but most believers don't understand what was really happening on that day. So today we're going to discover what really happened on Pentecost and what it means for us today. Pentecost, the word, simply means 50th. And in the Hebrew calendar, it's the day that they celebrated the first fruits or the first harvest. And it was simply the event that they did on the 50th day after Passover. It's purely an agricultural reference. So they had Passover and then uh, they had the planting of the seeds in the early spring. In the late spring, there was the first harvest. And that's Pentecost. It's come to us to mean something else, but it was just this first fruits gathering. And what they would do is they would take a portion of that first harvest and give it back to the Lord. And it was really kind of a faith offering because the final harvest didn't happen until the end of the summer. But they're making an offering back to the Lord from the first that they have, basically saying, I'm going to trust that everything that I need is going to be provided by the Lord so that I can take this offering now and give it to him. But I want you to know that I'm not here giving a big prelude to an offering. So you can take a sigh of relief there. There's something way more important happening at Pentecost than just taking up an offering. This Old Testament tradition was an offering, but it was an ordained celebration of these first fruits. What's important is that it was really simply a foreshadowing of Messiah. In the natural realm, we understand that many things in the natural mirror things that are happening in the spirit. Jesus talked about seeds and a sower, but he was really talking about the word of God and people's hearts. The seeds were the word of God. And the soil, the ground, the rocky ground, the thorny ground, the good soil is really talking about the condition of our heart. But Jesus spoke in metaphor and allegory so that we could understand something that he was trying to tell us. He gave us something grounded in a natural application so that we can grab it. And Pentecost and Passover, these feasts and celebrations are built around an agricultural calendar. So he's just talking their language, man. When Jesus spoke with Nicodemus, he spoke in terms of being born again. He was trying to convey a spiritual truth about a spiritual rebirth in terms of a natural birth. So the purpose of the natural rebirth imagery was to reveal a spiritual truth. But like for Nicodemus, sometimes it's hard for us to understand what the Spirit is actually trying to tell us. Paul understood this. In 1 Corinthians 2, he says, When I'm among mature believers, I do speak with words of wisdom, but not the kind of wisdom that belongs to the world. No, the wisdom we speak of is the mystery of God. That is what the Scripture means when it says, No eye has seen and no ear has heard and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. But it was to us that God revealed these things by his spirit. For his spirit searches out everything and shows us God's deep secrets. 1 Corinthians 2.13 continues, When I tell you these things, I do not use words that come from human wisdom. Instead, I speak words given to me by the spirit of God, using the spirit's words to explain spiritual truths. 
But people who aren't spiritual can't receive these truths from God's spirit. It all just sounds like foolishness to them, and they cannot understand it. For only those who are spiritual can understand what the spirit means. But we understand these things because we have the mind of Christ. But let's just take a moment to invite Holy Spirit to open our understanding. Would you just pray with me? Holy Spirit, we ask that you would infuse our minds and our hearts with yourself. Give us this mind of Christ. Give to us your wisdom, understanding, revelation, and truth. Father, give to us your spirit of counsel so that we may fully understand all that is available for us in understanding Pentecost. Lord, we bless your holy name. Amen. Well, what is this celebration of the first fruits of Pentecost trying to tell us? There are several layers, and I want to just unfold those quickly for you. Jesus was crucified and resurrected at Passover. And within the 40 days after his resurrection, Jesus personally meets with over 500 of his followers. Did you know that? I think sometimes we think that there was the disciples or one or two. But in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 7, it says this, Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried, he was raised from the dead, and on the third day, just as the scripture said. Verse 5, he was seen by Peter, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time. Then he was seen by James and later by all of the apostles. So this is the timeline. Jesus was crucified and resurrected at Passover. Within the next 40 days, he meets with his disciples, the apostles, and 500 other followers. Then Jesus ascended into heaven, which the disciples watched happen. Pentecost was about 10 days after the ascension. We read about the ascension in Acts 1, verses 3 through 5. It says, During the 40 days after he suffered and died, he appeared to the apostles from time to time, Isn't that strange? Like, if you're here, like, just stay. But from time to time, he'd pop in. (laughs) He proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive, and he talked to them about the kingdom of God. Once when he was eating with them, that's one way that he proved that he was not just spirit, Right. right? He was eating with them. He commanded them, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised, as I told you before. John baptized with water, but in just a few days, you will be baptized with Holy Spirit. After saying this, he was taken up into a cloud while they were watching, and then they could no longer see him. As they strained to see him rising into heaven, two white-robed men suddenly stood among them. Men of Galilee, they said, why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way you just saw him go. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, just a distance of about a half a mile. And when they went upstairs into the room of the house where they were staying, they all met together and were constantly united in prayer, along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and several other women, and Jesus' brother. During this time, about 120 believers were gathered in one place. The account continues in Acts 2, verse 1, on the day of Pentecost, to us, we look back and go, well, that's the day that the Holy Spirit fell. But to them, it was just the 50th day after Passover, celebrating the first fruits. On the first fruits festival, we should read, all the believers were meeting together in one place when suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm and it filled the house where they were sitting. 
Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. Isn't that remarkable though? At the time when the Jews were gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate the first fruits harvest, the disciples were gathered in the upper room and they'd been told by Jesus to go and wait. And what happens? On the day of first fruits, the disciples are gathered and miraculously Holy Spirit falls. At the time where the Jews are gathering to celebrate the first fruits, the first fruits of Christ's death and resurrection have gathered. Isn't that amazing? At the time when they are celebrating first fruits, the Holy Spirit falls on those who were the first fruit of Christ's death and resurrection. Well, the release of Holy Spirit in this fashion with the fire is also telling us another story. So I want to back up just a few thousand years back to the Israelites in the desert. We read in Exodus 25 verse 8 that God instructed Moses as follows. Have the people of Israel build me a holy sanctuary so I can live with them. God was looking for a way and a place to dwell with his people. And so he had them build a holy sanctuary so that he could live among them. The specifics of the desert tabernacle were given to Moses in very great detail. We know that there was a large curtain around a big courtyard. Inside was another small tent. And inside that tent was a room called the Holy of Holies. God's ability to live among his people, however, was obstructed by their sin. But sin just means our inability to live a pure and honorable life. That's what blocked our free access to God. Sin has become a heavy word that brings all sorts of guilt and condemnation, but in the Hebrew it simply means that you've wandered off the pathway of honor. And it was the Ten Commandments that outlined what a pathway of honor looks like. Someone living a, a life of honor doesn't steal, doesn't cover what other people have, doesn't turn their back against their parents. You see, it's not all the things that you should not do. It was not there to build guilt and shame and condemnation. That is not the way of God. It was a way to say, here is the pathway of honor. Into this Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle in the wilderness... Only the high priest could enter once a year in order to sprinkle the blood of the sacrificial lamb on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. It was a beautiful picture inside the Ark of the Covenant, which was just this wooden box with the stone tablets containing the Ten Commandments, the instructions of how to love and how to live an honorable life. On top of the Ark was a golden plate called the mercy seat, and above the mercy seat were two inward-facing cherubim, It was on the mercy seat that the blood was sprinkled and it was between the mercy seat and the wings of the cherubim that the presence of God would come. He would appear in a dark cloud and in fire and he would speak to the priest from this place, from above the mercy seat and between the cherubim wings. Leviticus 16.2 says, I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. Exodus 25:22 says, "There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel." I think too often we think that the sacrifices were speaking about our wrong, and really all God is trying to do is provide a way for him to come and speak to us and to dwell with us. 
Well, why did I take a digression from Pentecost to the first fruits, to the mercy seat and the Ark of the Covenant in the wilderness? It's because in order to understand Pentecost and all that it is telling us, in order for us to understand that allegory, Pentecost is painting a picture for us. We need to understand why a blood sacrifice was even required by God and how God moved upon that sacrifice because that's pivotal to everything. But in our Western mindset, we sometimes don't even want to ask the question, I don't get why a blood sacrifice is even necessary. So if you'll allow me to go on another little tangent, I want to weave something amazing together for us. Scripture tells us that sin, in the most basic terms, is this inability to live an honorable life. It creates a debt. And the only way to pay off or to satisfy that debt is with blood poured out in death. This is what Romans 6.23 means. The wages of sin is death, but it means What you deserve because of sin is death. In this way, with a blood sacrifice, the debt is satisfied. But in the Old Testament, these sacrifices did not satisfy the debt fully. They were simply partial, temporary solutions. They were daily, weekly, routine, regular, and annual drain, uh, sorry, drink and grain, blood offerings, oil and wine. All were purposed to satisfy the debt of sin so that God could live among them in his tabernacle and so that the people could live under God's favor and protection. God's goal has always been to provide favor and protection and to live among his people. One of the questions that isn't usually answered at Easter is the focus on the blood But why is it a blood sacrifice? It does seem strange. So let's unpack it together really quickly. We know that Jesus paid this price. He paid the debt that sin had created. And he paid it once and for all by voluntarily laying down his life. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6 tells it to us this way. For there is one God and one mediator between God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus, who brings God and man back together. He gave himself as a ransom to redeem the whole human race. This was the proof given at the right time that God wants everyone to be saved. Well, the premise that Jesus paid a ransom is important. And we know from modern movies what a ransom looks like. Usually that means that someone or something is held hostage and the demand is made and that in order for what is being held to be released, a ransom must be paid. The difficulty with modern hostage movies is that it can actually misinform us about the hostage and ransom situation that Christ addressed. The backdrop of hostage movies gives us the wrong idea of who Jesus paid the ransom to. Because in the movies, the ransom is always paid to the bad guy. But that is theologically and completely incorrect and untrue. Satan has no power over God. Nor does he have any ability to withhold something from God that belongs to him. Nor can he make a demand for anything from God. Satan actually has very little to do with what Jesus did on the cross. Satan was completely defeated by Christ's death and resurrection. But it wasn't because Jesus paid him off. That would be counterintuitive, wouldn't it? If Jesus had paid off Satan, then wouldn't Satan have won some kind of game? Jesus did not pay off Satan or meet any ransom or any demand that Satan made. The debt of sin that we owe 
is to God, and specifically to his holiness and his righteousness. We owe it to his justice. Mankind was unable to keep the law of God, meaning we were unable to pay the price, the price being a life lived in holy perfection. And so we became indebted to God's holiness. Remember, we began with the verse in 1 Timothy 5 and 6, there is one God and one mediator between God and humanity. The man Christ Jesus who brings God and man back together again. Satan was not involved in this exchange. The sin sacrifices through the ages were only a temporary payment on this debt of sin. I like to think of it like a layaway installment program. Mankind was being held back from full freedom and access to God. Full freedom and access again to oneness until that full price was paid. Galatians tells us that it was the law that held us and that the law has been like a guardian over our lives. The animal blood sacrifices kept the people in good standing in much the same way that an on-time layaway installment payment keeps the debtor in good standing and allows them to keep making payments. The blood sacrifices kept them in good standing, which enabled God's favor and protection to remain over them, even though they were not fully free yet. From the Old Testament prophets and New Testament apostles, we know that it was God's ultimate plan to redeem his people out from under the law. Galatians 3.19 tells us that the law was given to show us what an honorable life looked like. And by showing it, it also highlighted how we are unable to live it fully. But the law was only ever purposed to be in place over us until Christ came. In Galatians 3.23, we learn that before the way of faith in Christ was available, we were placed under this guardian, the law. The law served to protect us until we could be made right with God through Christ. But as soon as faith came, we no longer need a guardian. So the law did two things. It showed us how to live, but also highlighted that we're unable to meet that requirement. But by also requiring a sacrifice of sin, it provided a covering for our weakness and kept us safe, still under God's favor and protection. So even the purpose of the law was not to hold us at bay from God, but to enable us to come closer. The law of atoning sacrifices was a temporary measure that had to be met until the permanent solution was available. And the permanent solution is faith in Christ's complete and final payment. Well, (laughs) it's good news, isn't it? But what is this telling us? At first glance, it seems to tell us that God cannot be where there is sin because he requires a blood sacrifice in order to operate with us in favor and protection. But we know that that can't be true. We know that God is still present in a fallen world. Psalm 24 tells us the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the earth and the fullness thereof, the earth and all of its people, they belong to him. We also know that prior to us walking with the Lord, that the Lord has interacted with us even before we were saved, that he has been the one who was calling us and wooing us and speaking to us. So sin can't be that we have no access to God or that he is prevented from access to us, but it is the spiritual relationship of oneness and of unity with him that we were barred from. You see, this is the death that Adam and Eve suffered in the Garden of Eden. Oftentimes people worry, what does the Bible mean? It said that this day you shall die if you eat of this apple, and then they didn't die. Or did they? 
The chasm, the canyon, is a spiritual death that Christ had to bridge and reconcile on the cross. Remember Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus? Jesus was trying to describe a spiritual rebirth because it was a spiritual death that had occurred. And this death that Adam and Eve suffered at the instance of sin was twofold. First, it was an immediate death of life in God, the death of their spirit connection of intimate unity, oneness, and relationship with the Heavenly Father. It was this disconnection of intimate relationship that caused them to run and hide. They were instantly and painfully aware that something between them and their father had changed. Never before had they had reason to hide, but they were instantly afraid. The second death that they faced was an immediate change in their physical bodies. They changed from immortal creatures to mortal. With the lack of spiritual covering that they had enjoyed in God's spirit, they became aware of their nakedness, and instead of childlike innocence, they suddenly knew shame. In these two ways, sin took their life, and in these two ways, sin has taken our life. It has killed our spiritual life of oneness and unity with God, and it has killed our physical immortality. Genesis 3.21 tells us that after Adam sinned, the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. And the obvious inference here is the event of the first sacrifice when an animal's life was taken in order to provide covering for Adam and Eve. Well, that just brings me back to the first question of why a blood sacrifice? The law explains why a blood sacrifice is the only satisfactory re-entry or rebirth into spiritual life with God and for physical eternal life to be restored. Leviticus 17.11 says the life of the flesh, the life of the body is in the blood. The life is in the blood. The life is also in the spirit. John 6.63 says that it's the spirit that gives life. Galatians 5.25 it is the spirit of God that has given us life. Therefore, in order for us to be reborn spiritually and to re-enter into a spiritual life with God, enjoying oneness and unity with him as our heavenly father, we must exchange blood for new life. Jesus paid this debt and now we have access to our spiritual life by faith in his blood. A blood sacrifice is necessary because it's by reason of the life given in exchange that makes atonement effective. Our blood could not ever be given because it was no longer holy. Our blood, because of sin, had become defiled. So how can a defiled life buy back perfect life? Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. But we could write it this way. What you owe because of sin is your life, which is in your blood. God gave us life and we owe it back to him. But our blood has been contaminated and stained because of sin. Therefore, our blood cannot meet the requirement of sin. The requirement was an animal whose life was offered in exchange for the people's life to be pure and unblemished and its life be given in exchange. Romans 6.23 confirms that the debt payment that we owe back to God buys us back out from under the law. When we sin, we actually create a debt to God because he gave us life, which we carried in our blood, and this blood we defiled. 
Our blood can no longer carry his perfect spirit, which gives us our eternal life. Therefore, we cannot be one with him. We cannot commingle our contaminated lifeblood with his purity and his holiness. Leviticus tells us that the life is in the blood, so only pure blood can buy back or reconcile or redeem or ransom back our life. Now, I think it's important to point out that it is not God's disregard for human, I mean, sorry, for animal life that causes him to choose an animal as the sacrifice. I believe it actually shows the high value of animal life. Because if you go to a, a, a swap shop or a pawn shop, I have to be careful I say that word right here. I'm saying pawn shop. <laughs> you know. But listen, you can't go to a swap shop and take garden mulch to redeem a diamond. You have to take something of high inherent value to buy back something that has high inherent value. The thing is, animals, unlike humans, were not created in God's image. Humans, we are the only ones who bear that honor. So while animals have life in their blood, and a perfect unblemished animal can be used to redeem it, it's only a temporary partial payment. It could never pay the full price. It just was enough so that God could say, I will continue to extend my favor and my protection over you. But when Christ came, he was able because of his perfect unstained blood to pay that price. Atonement was a temporary covering so that God's people could benefit from his favor and protection and so that he could have a place with them. But all of this is a picture, a type, and a shadow, an allegory, using natural elements to reflect and reveal a spiritual transaction that was yet to come, that which would satisfy the debt once and for all. Jeremiah 31 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand out of Egypt, which covenant they broke. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. This is the days that we are in. We are in the after those days days. The Lord said, I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. While the world was waiting for the unveiling of the plan of how the debt of sin could be finally paid off, the people of Israel remained under the law of atonement. Then Jesus. Jesus was always God's mysterious plan from the very beginning. He was the pure, spotless lamb, the one uncontaminated by sin who himself never became indebted to the law. His life was the only sacrifice that carried the necessary value of being perfect, unblemished, uncontaminated, debt-free, lifeblood. And he willingly paid that debt, laying down his life, voluntarily spilling his blood in exchange for ours. All this for one reason, that we might be joined again back to our Father in a spiritual, eternal life, enjoying eternal intimacy and relationship with him. Freely, Jesus offered himself and exchanged his life, his blood, so that we could be brought back to life. And here's the mystery, that Jesus' physical blood could pay a spiritual debt, 
which we engage with and get the benefits of simply by our faith. By believing this truth like Abraham did, it is our faith that credits to us his righteousness. Because faith operates in a spiritual realm, it is able to activate a spiritual truth. Our spiritual life, our eternal life, our ability to be one with the eternal one, that's what was being held back and lay away. But now our account has been paid in full and we get title to spiritual sonship and eternal life again. This is why the Apostle Paul was so adamant when he said, My dear brothers and sisters, consider the gift that you have been given. It is God's grace that even permitted his son's blood to redeem you out of the guardianship of the law, which you get as a pure gift, and you get it by simply having faith to believe. He says in Galatians 5.13, So then don't use this freedom to go and satisfy your own sinful nature. The whole point was to redeem you out of a sinful nature. Consider the cost it took to buy you out. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. That was a good segue, but it was a long segue. How does it talk to us about Pentecost? Well, after the debt was finally paid in full by Christ on the cross, what do we see? We see something remarkable happen in the upper room with the 120 gathered. Something that had been revealed in part in the wilderness with Moses and then in part again in Jerusalem with King Solomon's temple. And this is where I actually get to the point of my message. So if you'll go on one more little journey with me back in time, I want to go back to the wilderness with Moses. When he had completed the tabernacle with the Ark of the Covenant inside the Holy of Holies, we read this amazing account. Exodus 40 Verses 33 through 38 says, Then Moses hung the curtains, forming the courtyard around the temple and the altar. And he set up the curtain at the entrance of the courtyard. And so at last, Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tabernacle and the glory, the weight and tangible presence of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could no longer enter the tabernacle because the cloud had settled down over it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. We see the very similar picture in 2 Chronicles 7 when King Solomon completes his temple in Jerusalem. We read this in 2 Chronicles 7. When Solomon finished praying, fire flashed down from heaven. It burnt up the offerings and the sacrifices and the glorious tangible presence of God filled the temple. The priests could no longer enter the temple of the Lord because the glorious presence of the Lord filled it. When all the people of Israel saw the fire coming down and the glorious presence of the Lord filling the temple, they fell face down on the ground and worshipped and praised the Lord saying, He is good. His faithful love endures forever. So Solomon finished the temple of the Lord as well as the royal palace. He completed everything he had planned to do. Then one night the Lord appeared to Solomon and said, This is 2 Chronicles 7, verse 12. Solomon, I have heard your prayer, and I have chosen this temple as the place for making sacrifices. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sins, and I will restore their land. 
Verse 15, my eyes, says the Lord, will be open and my ears attentive to every prayer made in this place. For I have chosen this temple and I set it apart to be holy, a place where my name will be honored forever. I will always watch over it because it is dear to my heart. The words for tabernacle used here in Exodus and Second Chronicles are the word mishkan and it means dwelling place, habitation or home. It's our home. In the place of the wilderness tabernacle and also in King Solomon's temple, because of the atoning sacrifices offered, God found for himself a place to dwell among his people. A home. This has been the eternal longing of God's heart since before the foundation of the world. Then we fast forward to Pentecost with the 120 gathered in the upper room and we see a very similar picture of fire and glory descending from heaven. Let's read it again, Acts 2, 1 through 4. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present was filled with Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as he gave them the ability to do so. In the desert, when Moses' tabernacle was complete and the required sacrifices had been made, the glory of God fell and he took up habitation in that place. In Jerusalem, when King Solomon's temple was complete and the required sacrifices had been made, the glory of God fell. And he took up habitation in that place. Then Pentecost. When the temple of man's heart was made complete, because the required final sacrifice of Christ had been made, the glory of God fell and he took up habitation in their hearts. Pentecost is when the full weight, power, presence and glory, majesty and splendor, the tangible personal presence of God himself fell from heaven and he took up residence again in the heart of man. It wasn't just that fire appeared above them or that the disciples began speaking in tongues. That was the evidence in the natural of what had just taken place in the spirit. Man's heart had again just become the dwelling place of the most high God. What had been lost in the Garden of Eden was reinstated at Pentecost. God and man dwelling together in unity as one. The Apostle Paul confirmed this using the old language and metaphor of the temple to explain that we are individually each the temple of God and also corporately the body of Christ, the unified temple and dwelling place. We see it in 1 Corinthians 3.16. He talks to us about our individual temple. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? God's temple is holy and you are that temple. 1 Peter 2.5 says you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. 1 Corinthians 12.12 talks about the corporate nature. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one, so it is with Christ's body. On the day of Pentecost, the most remarkable thing happened. Because of Christ's perfect exchange of his blood for ours, 
of his life for ours. The debt to sin was paid in full. It was cancelled and permanently eradicated. Your sin, which you bring to the Lord over and over, is no more. God does not simply see you as forgiven. He sees you as never having sinned. Galatians 3, 13 through 15, Christ paid the price to free us. Christ paid the price so that the blessing promised to Abraham would come to all people of the world through Christ and we would receive the promised spirit through faith. Well, while we may not feel or see tongues of fire descending upon us this morning while we remember Pentecost, that does not mean that God has not joined with us. We receive this truth as a reality in our life by our faith that God's word is true. The result of our faith is the indwelling glory of God forever. We simply believe these accounts to be true, and in doing so, we get our accounts paid in full. Our spiritual eternal life is restored. We have the ability to enter into a state of being that renders us the home of the Most High God. That is the meaning of the blood sacrifice. And that is the meaning of Pentecost. And this is why if people ask you, why do you say that Jesus is the only way back to God? It is because he, Jesus, as God himself and as a pure, undefiled sacrifice, is the only one who could pay off that debt. And by the way, not only is he, is he the only one who did, he's the only one who has even ever claimed to have done it. In no other religion is there a Messiah who pays the price for you. In no other religion is there a way out of this sin debt. New Age and Eastern mysticism religions, including religions of philosophies of karma and human potential, all require that you continue to perform an endless series of temporary attempts to buy God's favor. All other religions with prophets claiming new ways or new information are all human men who died, but their death did not buy you out of sin. Their prophecies describe God's wrath And they may describe new knowledge or new revelation, but this knowledge could not even save themselves from death. Only Jehovah sent his son, Jesus Christ, who is Yeshua, Messiah. He sent him because of his great love for you. And if you were the only one who would ever believe, he still would have come. Jehovah has been grieving his loss of you. And it was only his son, Jesus, who voluntarily came and paid the ransom price that no one else could pay. Jesus is the only one who ever said, my life for your life, my blood for your blood, my spirit for your spirit. Because of this exchange, you are now the eternal residence of the most high God, reunited with the heavenly father who has longed for you since before the foundation of the world. Only Jesus Christ saved you so that you could become the residence of the tangible presence of God. What a wonder. What a mystery. But you may say, Elizabeth, that's amazing. But if that is true, why doesn't my life look different? If it's true that I'm the indwelling presence of the holy God, why doesn't my life look different? 
There is a general misconception in Christianity that if a promise in the word exists, then it should just be. If that's true, then it should just be. But if that was true, then the best promise and gift in the word of salvation, if it's just there, means it's effective in your life, means that everyone at any time throughout history would all be saved. Because the promise of salvation is there. It is just there. Therefore, every man ought to be saved. But we know that that is not true. We know that we have to come to a place where we engage, where we activate, where we step in to say, I want to take the benefit of that. Some point we have to come and make an exchange where we say, that promise I desire to have. Well, if that is required of the best promise and gift of salvation, then it's likely a model for every other one. And the way to salvation, the word tells us, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that he raised you from the dead, then you shall be saved. Why does our life not look like the indwelling of the Most High God? It may be because right now it exists as a promise in the word. And it is true. But we have an opportunity this morning to confess with our mouth and to believe in our heart and to say, that which exists as a possibility for me, I choose to take. You may find a house that's for sale, but until you pay the price and sign the title, your name is not on the deed. Jesus has paid the price. He's put your name on that deed, but we have to sign it and say, yes, yes, I'm taking this as my own. So that's the opportunity that I want to simply allow us to stand in today and to simply say, Lord, I confess with my mouth that I have now become the dwelling place of the tangible presence of God because of the perfect sacrifice of Christ. And I believe in my heart that it is simply by faith that I get to receive it so that now we can begin to see that manifestation of his presence. Not just in church on a Sunday morning, not just when we pray for somebody, but when you pay, pump your gas at the gas station and you leave a residue so that the next person who comes to simply pump their gas with the two bucks that they have in their pocket meets the living God. So that when you buy your groceries and the checkout chick across from you is scanning your things and suddenly it's not, you don't even have to say anything. You don't have to read her mail. You don't need a prophetic moment. But the Spirit of God shows up and tells her in no uncertain terms, I've been longing for you since before the foundation of the world. Will you stand with me and let's pray this morning? I'll just lead you in this prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we are so grateful for the truth that you are revealing to us about what Christ actually did on the cross. He didn't just forgive our sins, which was absolutely necessary, but the purpose was so that you would find a home in my heart. And so that every place I go, those around me will come into the exact same knowledge that Christ came so that you could reinstate oneness, perfect unity, unbridled perfection with you. This is why we strive and struggle still with sin even after salvation because we have yet to take advantage of this particular promise. Where we're so full of him where the fire of God falls and it burns up everything that is not of him and it sets on fire everything that is. 
So, Father, let, just repeat after me. Father God, thank you for Christ's sacrifice. I confess with my mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. I believe in my heart that you raised him from the dead. I also confess with my mouth that Christ paid that ransom so that I could be the indwelling home of the Most High. And I believe in my heart that by my faith, this is. We bless your holy name. And now decree with me, I am the home and the indwelling place of the Most High God. Amen. That was absolutely awesome. <laughs> um, could I have the ushers come up? We just want to bless our sister, take up a special offering for her. And um, you, yeah, on the Mooresville site, you can text to give, and then there's a place that says special speaker. So, um, or you can give the old fashioned way. <laughs> well, Father God, we thank you for this word. Mm. We thank you for how evident Messiah and the plan for salvation has been from Genesis to Revelation and every book in between. We thank you for laying a blueprint for us to be able to follow, to be able to see not only what Messiah did, but how it was your plan and your purpose from the foundations of the earth. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for the Messiah. Thank you for your obedience to come. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jehovah Father. Father, we ask your blessing on this offering. We ask our blessing on your sister, on our sister, your daughter and her family and her travels. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. The ministry team wants to come up. You know, Dean just said a word. He said blueprint. Everybody say blueprint. Blueprints is how you build. You build with blueprints. And I felt like while she was uh, speaking, like, whoa, this is, this is a download, a blueprint download, okay? And it's really how we can build our lives and walk in everything that God has, has for us. And so let's just say that one more time. Lord, I receive your blueprint. I want to live my life the way you designed it to be. So I receive this blueprint today. I receive the blood. I receive, receive the Holy Ghost. And Lord, I just pray right now. I pray for a manifestation for that in my life, Lord. Lord, I, I don't want to just, just have something in my mind. I want to have it burning inside of me, Lord. And I want to see it manifested all around me, Lord. Lord, I want to go to the grocery store and the Holy Ghost falls on the cashier. I want to go to the gas pump and watch the next guy who walks up and watch him get blistered by you, Lord. Watch you fall all over him, Lord. Lord, that's the kind of people we want to be. And so, Lord, today, Lord, I just pray you've given us an opportunity to go beyond where we've been. You've given us an opportunity to step out. 
You've given us opportunity to realize who we are and what we carry, Lord. I pray, Lord, every one of us, that would just burn on us, Lord. It would just burn on us, Lord. Let that spirit of burning just burn in us, Lord. Let it burn inside of us, Lord. And so, Lord, we pray for that, for that time to come, just like in the Scripture after the day of Pentecost. All these miracles, all these wonderful things begin to happen. Lord, we ask you to do that for us, Lord. We just pray that we'd be people who would live in the reality of the New Testament, Lord. Thank you, Lord. So you can get this message. You go out and they've got a book table. And I just encourage you to get all her stuff, man. It's just, I mean, it's just all so good. And also her husband has produced a movie on experiences with angels. He's interviewed people and it's amazing to get that. But you can download on There's cards out there for a free download of this message. And I think this message was like a capstone for the weekend. So please go out there and, and get it. This Was this not just amazing today? Give her a hand. Oh, this is just powerful. So... so good it's funny I'll just say one quick little thing um, I was talking with somebody that goes to church here this week and he was talking about another person in a good way um, that goes here and he was saying how this person had such a hunger for more of God and it really quickened something in me because I felt like I'd lost that but I tell you what God's so good he hears our cries and if you're hungry, if you're not hungry, just ask for it. And he'll give you that hunger back. And man, he'll just feed you and it's some good stuff. So just thank you. Be blessed today. Be blessed this week. Yeah, the ministry team, come on and up. If you need prayer for anything, just come on up. Yeah. Yeah, there we go. Awesome. So Lord, do your do your work here. Continue to do your work. Let healings flow in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Just thank you. Thank you for this work today, God. Thank you for your your Holy Spirit and your love, God. In Jesus' name. Amen.